if we are aware of what's happening, we can start to have conversations around how to best use what's out there and when to use it. Sharon, president and CEO of Will Interactive Incorporated, has 30 years of experience designing leading-edge instructional systems for behavior modification and performance improvement. She holds a U.S. patent for creating computer-based interactive movie software to help improve human performance. Her work has been featured on NBC, CNN, NPR, as well as in Forbes magazine, Time magazine, The Washington Post, and approximately 50 others. Her work has received over 80 awards as one of the leading innovators in the learning and communication industry. Sharon has worked with many of America's most prestigious organizations, touched some 30 million users. Partners include AIG, Yale New Haven Health Systems, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and all branches of the U.S. military. Sharon holds an MA in counseling from the University of Connecticut and a Bachelor of Science in Education from Boston University. Welcome back. We are here today with my guest, Sharon Sloan. Sharon, thank you for joining me on the Gravity Podcast. A pleasure to be here. Delighted. Thank you. Well, let's start, you know, as we were just talking about at the beginning, as we usually do. Um, let me uh, kind of uh, hear a little bit about kind of your, your early memories as to what it was like to be you as a child, your family, where you grew up, kind of what that dynamic was like. Absolutely. Well, I was very fortunate to grow up in a very loving Jewish family. My dad was a brilliant and uh, accomplished entrepreneur, humanitarian, really started with absolutely nothing. His own mother passed away when he was only eight years old. And so really from his early days, he worked and put his whole life together um, on his own for many, many years and helped his siblings. Um, He went on to invent a number of things and uh, get a number of patents and uh, really, uh, you know, had a a very business focused mentality and the kindest, sweetest person you would ever want to know. My mother was absolutely lovely, um, just a sweet person. Uh, very kind, very loving, um, very supportive. And um, it was a, a wonderful way to start. And I, I I think back on some of those early days, um, and, and you will probably appreciate this. Um, what was most common after dinner was for my father to figure margins on the back of a napkin. Now, in those days, it was literally on the back of a napkin, not on our iPhone or our tablet. He was in the garment industry, manufactured jackets and coats and things like that. So he would be figuring how many yards of material and how many zippers and buttons and how much labor would be needed. Um, And I grew up in those early years thinking that's what every family did after dinner. Of course, as I got a little older, I realized that Conversations after dinner vary tremendously in different families, but that was a big focus. And then my mother was always involved in um, a, a lot of 
uh, charitable organizations, whether it was the Association for the Blind, the National Federation for the Blind, because she suffered from uh, eye problems, vision, physical vision problems. But what she lacked in physical vision, she more than made up for in her outlook on life. Mm. Um, and so that was really the beginning for, for me. Mm. Yeah, so that's um, great to hear. I'm um, curious to kind of learn more about you know, how both of their influence and then maybe kind of how your own just, you know, way of being started to emerge as you were a child or as you started to move through your schooling. Well, uh, I, I guess I always felt like I wanted to do something on my own. My father used to have an expression, you want to be the person that signs the check, not waits for the paycheck. But of course, there were many difficult years in his life growing his business. And as we as entrepreneurs all know, we have our ups and downs. So what happened was um, I thought I would become a teacher because I was very interested at the earliest age in learning and behavior and psychology and those kinds of things. And I did. I did go to college and then graduate school, and I became an English teacher and then a high school guidance counselor. But I realized that I wanted to do something else with that background and actually wanted to work with adults, not teach children. Now, I have two wonderful children and I grandchildren. I love kids, but it just wasn't what I wanted to do professionally. So I started to do some consulting in instructional design, curriculum development, things like that with a number of organizations here in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, And then um, what I saw was that what was passing for learning or training in corporations, in healthcare organizations, in the government actually wasn't moving the needle on anything. It wasn't getting applied. It wasn't changing attitudes and behaviors. It was kind of this check the box and a lot of wasted resources. So um, I started to think about, well, what does it take to actually change people's behavior in a positive way and go beyond giving them knowledge, information, and skills to affect what they do in real life? And uh, that was the beginning of what became Well Interactive, which is what we do today. My uh, partner, um, Lynn McCall, and I co-founded the company all the way back in the late 1990s. We patented this interactive behavior modification system, which is really a form of interactive movie that we're still doing today that we had to do on desktops and big monitors back then, and now we're doing it on our phones. But it we took on the ability to engage people emotionally, not just cognitively, to change their behavior in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And so today we're really focused on changing the fabric of society around things like mental health, um, improving people's experience at work, whether it's sexual harassment prevention or diversity, equity, and inclusion many of the things that are at the center of the great resignation right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely want to talk more about that. Um, 
and it's fascinating work. I um, am curious a little bit more about kind of you know this um, part of you that clearly wants to be an entrepreneur. And you know, we talk a lot about that. Um, I don't know if you've uh, had a chance to cross paths with Gino Wickman. Um, he's uh, from EOS. Gino is also a strategic coach guy and friend of Justin's. So um, I thought maybe, but uh, he's got a, a thing uh, called Leap right now, which is all focused on trying to help people decide if they want to be an entrepreneur or not, if they actually, in his opinion, are born to be entrepreneurs, but it's mm. clearly not for everybody. And so I'm kind of curious, you know, it sounds like in your case, you have this strong um, influence coming in from your father, you know, seeing him back in the napkin, margins, you know, just kind of in it, you know, really um, the impression that that must have made on you. But then also, you know, you describe that maybe there was something just in you to begin with that you were wired that way that you know, for one reason or another, that's kind of just the path that you really were energized by. And, and, you know, maybe you can just kind of share with the audience a little bit about kind of what that feels like or what that was like for you, how you knew that you, you definitely really wanted to go down that path. And then, you know, maybe you can talk about um, how you decided what it was that you wanted to do, you know, first that you wanted to be an entrepreneur and then what you wanted to build. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a clearly um, not for everyone. It is. I always say entrepreneurship is a lifestyle, not a job. Um, and uh, my partner and I joke about this all the time that uh, we're actually life partners as well as business partners is no one would probably have either one of us because we're so consumed, the passion of our, of our work. But I think what happened was that... Um, I wanted to have some control over my own destiny. And when I worked as a consultant in some of the uh, large organizations uh, with a lot of very intelligent people and, and wonderful people, I was not cut out at all for sort of the office politics part of corporate life. Um, that wasn't what interested me. What was interesting to me was doing something that made an impact. And, and of course, it was very challenging because in those early days, we had a lot of peanut butter sandwiches. First of all, if you think back, and I know it's hard for you and all of our you know, listeners probably to think back to the late 1990s, there was no broadband, there were no tools, there was no software. And so people would say to me, what are you doing? Like nobody will ever play video on a computer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and go get a job. <laughs> right. And I, I felt like, no, that's not right. Can't do it quite yet. But there's a real need to engage people in learning experiences that actually impact their life and improve the lives of others. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it was kind of like the only path was to do it on my own because there was nowhere else to do it in, mm-hmm. in those days. And there were a lot of challenges. Like I said, you know, people thought when we went to our first conference that we had some sort of 
crazy stuff under our exhibit table that, you know, what we were doing couldn't be done um, because it wasn't being done back then. Um, but we were fortunate that we encountered some very visionary people um, in the military and in healthcare that became quite interested in what we were doing and gave us the opportunity to apply some of the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe just expand a little bit on this like belief. I'm, I have a couple questions that I'm, I'm curious about. One, you know, related to the technology and, and the specifics of what, you know, you're really doing. Um, and you're right. I mean, it is fascinating just how, how fast, I guess. I mean, you know, you're talking 20 years, but still, um, you know, 20 plus years still that I actually do remember the, the late nineties. I was, you know, into my career already at that point. And, um, in fact, I often joke that, um, when I met my wife, um, we, uh, I was in college and I went back to school and she was back home and, um, I got a, a dial up modem, uh, uh, you know, and had an AOL account to try to like stay in touch, you know, and, and then I couldn't figure out how to use it and it took forever. And, you know, it was, so I very much remember those days and it's crazy, you know, just how much, um, the tech is evolved and how fast it's evolving, which I, I am curious to hear your opinion on, but, but before we do that, you know, kind of sticking with the entrepreneurial thread, there's always going to be the people that say, what are you doing? And you can't do that. And that's strange or weird, or it's just not even possible. So what, what was that like for you to hear all of that and still have some belief? I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there were some doubts too, but there, there must have been some sort of something that was driving you that, that despite the, the naysayers, you kept going. Yeah, um, you're right all, on all counts there. Um, I just felt like there was a there there, like this could be done. And I'm not the technology person, so I surrounded myself with you know much smarter people on that end. But for me, it seemed like a, a super important problem that needed to get solved, which was to help people learn in ways that it was applied and change their behavior because that is the cornerstone of everything. It's what people do. And it wasn't happening. And I have, you know, I had a master's in counseling and I had my bachelor's in English and education. So I had some fundamental understanding of the way the brain works. And over the years, of course, I've studied neuroscience and, and a lot of other things. But I think I just felt so passionate about it. And because our methodology used movies as the delivery tool, even though movies were not interactive back then. I felt like if we could capture the engaging quality of movies, because people remember movie scenes they saw 10 years ago. Well, they'll forget about learning or training program they took 10 days ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt like this had to be done. It could be done. And if I surrounded myself with the right people and we got a start, if we could get some traction with somebody that really wanted to make an impact on a problem that 
the world would sort of catch up to us as far as the technology. I had a lot of um, emotional support from my parents um, mm. who said, you know, if you really think there's something there, go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, can't uh, underestimate those that are cheering you on too, you know. Um, and so why don't you just take a minute and explain a little bit more about, you know, what what it is that you're actually doing today, how you're using it, how you've kind of started to get into solving real problems that, you know, are, are um, you know, really uh, everywhere right now. You know, go ahead and just kind of take the audience through exactly, you know, kind of how you guys are approaching the work that you're doing. Absolutely. So as I said, you know, we take on the the big issues of national concern around behavior. So right now, our world is a very challenging place. I think everybody would agree about that. Uh, We partner with Yale New Haven Health and the School of Medicine around clinician and burnout and suicide, and all of the problems that we're facing that have been exacerbated by COVID, but were there before around resilience and wellness for our clinicians. It's not a medical issue only because Mm -hmm. we are all consumers of healthcare. So if we lose our best and brightest in the medical profession, and if doctors tell young people don't go into medicine because XYZ, we will have a a major public health crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, In another way, um, we see terrible things going on in the corporate workplace. Top of your newsfeed, sexual harassment, abusive conduct, ethical misbehavior. It's every day. And so how can people thrive in an environment like that? And how can organizations thrive? And it goes to their mission and their brand and their productivity and their bottom line. So our interactive movies actually are proven to change behavior. They Mm -hmm. will change what people do in a positive way. It sounds like not really possible. Like how could an interactive movie software product make that kind of impact? But we've had numerous studies over the years. Uh, As an example, the Army was facing a suicide crisis. They were losing Mm -hmm. 25 to 30 soldiers every month. And they came to us, this was just over a decade ago, and we created a program that became the centerpiece of an Army stand-down. So every American soldier and Army civilian around the world used the program for two hours during a 30-day period, and we reduced Army suicide by over 60%. Mm, Wow. Amazing. So we're there for the people that are not in place to check the box. Mm-hmm. And we work with leading organizations, AIG, S&P Global, Mercedes, people that MasterCard, I mean, the people that have leadership that really wants to enhance culture, lead to productivity, and also, honestly, right now, Brett, recruit and retain the best talent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because the great resignation is alive and well. And we try to give our customers a competitive advantage. 
And also because we work very horizontally across all industries, we tend to bring best practices and lessons learned from the military to healthcare, from healthcare to professional sports, from professional sports to financial services and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, so talk to me a little bit about kind of the the tech and and how you've you know seen that evolve and and you know I mean it feels to me like it's um, just kind of uh, speeding up at at multiples that are almost impossible to even keep up with anymore. You know what's what's this this latest shift with you know Web three and 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 VR and AR and the metaverse. I mean I, I'm I'm a uh, I'm both curious about kind of the speed at which it's moving, but then also, you know, you're clearly in a lane where you are trying to use the technology, not trying, you are using the technology for good, which is also something I think, you know, that has to be elevated in the, in the conversation of technology. Um, it's usually people are pretty quick to kind of say, why where we're going, including where we are, is bad. Um, I'm not convinced that it is. I, I certainly see the downsides of it um, and, and the, the elements that are. But um, I think that there's a lot of good here too. And maybe that's even you know, our responsibility. Uh, but talk a little bit about kind of how you see the technology advancing you know, at the rate it's advancing, the rate it's advanced. And then, you know, kind of how you think about using it um, to to create, you know, powerful outcomes. Well, that's a really interesting point, um, and I'll I have a very strong opinion on it. Technology is an enabler. I don't believe that technology is the end state, and that was twenty five years ago, and that's today. Uh, bells and whistles. Say, say more about that. Yeah, explain that that comment a little bit. Okay, so I don't believe that bells and whistles are what it's all about, or how fast the speed is. You want a good user experience, of course. But why are you doing it, and what are you trying to accomplish? It's a tool. It's a way of getting to someplace else. It's about improving behavior, changing society, there is a terrible dark side. Um, and you, you mentioned, for example, VR and AR. I'll, I'll take that. You know, uh, We get asked about that a lot in our learning programs, and we've played around with that technology. And we're doing a few things with AR and some of our work with the Navy and some of our other customers. But here's my question always to the team, to the customer. How does it add to the outcome that we're trying to achieve? And what's the downside? So do you really need to invest in goggles and put people in front of a screen and worry about handing off this heavy stuff? Does it add something? So far, I've not seen any research that shows in terms of changing behavior that that Work, that 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 adds value. Now there is some new work going on, and I know there are some people doing some good things, but I think that we need to stay grounded. And where we stay grounded is in what we're trying to achieve. Now, if you're in the entertainment industry, 
you're going to have probably a different lens that looks at this if you're selling video games or things of that nature, because those are out there and consumed for different reasons and by, in some cases, different populations. But from our perch, we actually built a whole platform behind our interactive movie delivery that collects information that we feed back to the organization on what choices the people make in the movie. Do they go back and make different decisions if they get a bad outcome? How long do they play? And feedback to the organization, for example, around sexual harassment. Well, it seems like 76% of your population is really struggling when they have this kind of scenario at work. Whereas over here, everybody seems to be doing quite well. Well, that tells the organization maybe where they need to invest in additional initiatives. Where is, are people being held back? How can we help them thrive or overcome those challenges? That's where technology, in my opinion, is so useful because it helps to inform and then it helps us to take the next step. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, let me just kind of flush that out a little bit with you because I've kind of pivoted my thinking on tech here recently. Um, and a big part of my um, kind of commitment to um, embracing technology is that um, I don't know that we really have a choice anymore. That um, the we're not getting rid of our phones unless we're you know going into you know a, a VR set of some kind, right? Like we're already in it. I mean, the, the, the whole idea that um, we use our phones too much, look at our, our phones too much, which we might, I don't see it changing. I, I, I just, I see it increasing. Um, and now maybe that's, um, it could sound like, boy, you know, we're doomed. You know, we, there's nothing, we're helpless. There's nothing we can do. But what I'm saying is, what if... <laughs> it, it doesn't have to just be about entertainment and games, right? What if there's more content um, and experiences that are actually beneficial for people that are really, like you said, tools to help people improve their lives? Um, and so that's kind of where I've started getting excited. You know, when you start to look at it from that lens, there are a lot of opportunities to provide experiences to people that might not otherwise have the opportunity to have that experience. You know, if you can, if you can go into a headset and you know be on a beach or go skiing or I don't know, jump out of an airplane or whatever it is that gets you excited, right? Um, meditate or connect with somebody you know i mean when you when you look at the pandemic and you see kind of the um way that facetime and zoom was connecting people you know i you know a lot of people were talking even you know just social media facebook to keep in touch with old you know friends from college or people from high school or kids or other people i mean there's a lot there that maybe isn't as bad as we 
we kind of thought it was. Again, I don't want to diminish the the, the serious negative in, uh, effects that are there, but you know, um, talk to me about what you what you think. Like it's you know, I'm kind of saying it's too late. It's, it's can't put the genie back in the bottle. You know, VR is coming. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and certainly there's a place for VR, but I think you used the word responsible a few minutes ago, and I think it's a very important word. Um, and how do we use technology in a responsible fashion? It's kind of like everything else in life. There are always going to be bad actors or people that use things for destructive purposes. But those same technologies can be used for good. So I think it's a, it's a moral compass. I think it's mm-hmm. how we bring the society, which is so fragmented right now, together. Um, we have social media, for example, being used for good purposes and not good purposes. And I think you're right. The genie's out of the bottle. Um, There is, I do believe, though, the very beginnings now, and you mentioned the word meditation, um, of people in unexpected places talking about the value of silence, turning off of your phone to have just quiet time. Um, And that is not slacking off, but that it actually helps you thrive. It helps your brain recharge. It gives you more innovative ideas that less is more sometimes. And so I think it's all around us and it can be all-consuming. Um, I was reading the other day about Microsoft's quiet room. I don't know if you happen to stumble on that. Um, no. They have a, a, a room um, where the idea is to pick up any kind of minutia in terms of a sound. It could be the buzz of a computer or a bird flying by, tweeting or whatever. Um, And they're looking at the effects of noise on all of us because all of this stuff is going in the background. And it's fascinating, some of the work that they're doing there, but Mm -hmm. it's just one example. I think that noise, the word noise, refers not only to physical noise, but I would call it mental noise. There's this sort of fear of missing out if I don't keep checking my phone or my Facebook or whatever tool you're using. Um, and I think there's an educational process. If we, if we are aware of what's happening, we can start to have conversations around how to best use what's out there and when to use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I heard uh, Elon talking about it from the perspective of, um, well, if people are staring at their phones all the time, then maybe they like what's on their phone more than they like what's off their phone. So in other words, they like this kind of virtual social media life better than they like their own lives. And 
there's, you know, it, it kind of sparks some curiosity in me. And, and I know that most people will probably say, that's terrible. You know, that, that, that's terrible. You know, the people aren't connecting and they're not being with their kids or they're not being with their spouses or, you know, they're distracted and fear of missing out. And, and I think that could really be true that, you know, you kind of have to ask yourself, well, am I, am I not being a good parent? Am I not being a good spouse? Um, you know, if I, have I lost my mind? Am I, you know, like, is this doing things to me that, that make me feel bad? Um, or, or what, what I started thinking about that is what if, what if we could create, um, you know, just kind of additional ways for people to improve their lives, to actually like their lives better because of the technology. You know, you you talked about the the quiet room, and um, you know, you see a lot of um, tech that I mean, I, I've kind of seen, I guess, you know, dribblings of this that you know we might be able to simulate nature in you know, impoverished communities or inner cities or places where you know it doesn't exist. You might be able to kind of you know be in an environment where those noises, those sounds, you know, the, that, you know, that, you know, of, of trickling water or birds, you know, chirping or, you know, beautiful music or something, which could actually, you know, help you benefit you. I, I don't know. I'm just kind of like, you know, grasping at some ideas, but um, I don't know. I just kind of feel like that's where we're going to focus. That's, you know, uh, our group in particular is, is really looking at this tech as if we don't have a choice. It's, it's happening. And so what's our role in it and how are we going to um, try to make the human experience a better one um, because of these tools? And because I think you're right. If not, we'll just be kind of, you know, stuck mindlessly staring at stuff and, you know, playing games and killing each other and killing ourselves. Um, you know, if, if there's not something there that's actually beneficial, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I, I, I come back to you know what I said as far as an enabler. If it's an enabling, uh, if, if there's some technology that enables somebody in an impoverished urban community to have a better life experience then that's a wonderful use of the technology. And there are probably many things that we can, we can do. Look at all the medical advances also with technology, things that couldn't be done 20 years ago uh, that are being done today in saving lives and improving lives. So I think whatever the technology is, at the end of the day, it will be how we humans choose to use it for better, for improvement, for quality of life, for helping others, bringing community together, whatever it is. And there will be a dark side. There always has been. Um, and unfortunately, that exists. But I think that there are a lot of good things that come out of it. But it needs to be responsible, responsible use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no question. Well, talk to me a little bit more about kind of where you guys are headed and what the future looks like for you and your group. 
Well, um, we're always focused on the things that are impacting society and particularly business and the most. Um, right now, we're doing a lot around emotional well-being and mental health in organizations. We just released a new program called Emotional Life Skills at Work. Uh, people are struggling. Um, managers and supervisors often have no idea what to do with their teams. They've never been trained, and they are certainly not psychologists. We're not making every manager or supervisor psychologist, but there are so many things that can be done in the in the workplace to help people have a better experience, especially now that folks are remote or hybrid, things are changing day to day. We have COVID, childcare situations, an elderly parent in the home. I mean, it, it's, it's everywhere. Um, so how do we really address those kinds of things? Um, because most challenges in business, and I'll be interested in your take on this, and you drill down, they're actually people challenges. Yes, equipment breaks, um, and, and it has to be replaced and that sort of thing. But so much of it is really around how people interact with each other, how they behave how they view the organization that they're a part of, the community in which they live, how they treat other folks, how they want to be treated. And together we can do so much if we're working together. And I think that there's a real opportunity. Um, and so we're focused on the big issues. You know, I talk with people all day long about the shortages in talent. Or, um, as I mentioned earlier, the clinician well-being and what's going on in our healthcare professions. And so we're focused on delivering these tools that help people improve their behavior for their own well-being, the organization that they work in, and then society writ large. And through a very entertaining venue, it's not this painful stab me with a fork training thing that, you know, people hear the word training and it's like, oh gosh, I have to do that thing again. It's not that at all. It's actually a very enjoyable, enlightening experience. They talk to other people about it and then everybody benefits by elevating the culture and improving their lives and the lives of the organizations. That's great. Yeah. You know, I love the idea that you're um, taking what something what what might have been something people uh, really did not look forward to doing into something that's a is a very um, you know pleasurable and and beneficial experience. So it's great. Um, and uh, yeah, I I really believe that you're an example of what I'm talking about and have been for a long time, right? In and kind of in the face of the. Um, Kind of scrutiny or criticism or uncertainty of technology, you've been leaning in and and using it in a way that is really adding value uh, to uh, others. And so that's that's great. And I think you know that's you know what I'm committed to doing too, and and feel very much uh, inspired by and and really you know hopeful and optimistic about where we're headed and how these tools can really. Um, be a big part of that. So 
Thanks, Sharon, for what you're doing. Um, any other kind of you know final thoughts or comments or anything you wanted to share with the audience? Well, first of all, I understand from Justin that you were uh, just named Entrepreneur of the Year. In, oh, yes. Thank uh, in you. Columbus. So a mazel tov <laughs> yes. to you. Thank you. And congratulations, thank you. Brett. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and thank you so much for having me, you know, join you uh, today. I, I guess my, my um, you know, only thing I would say is that um, if at any time I can help you or any of your listeners in terms of changing the fabric of society through learning, not training as anybody knows of it from the past, or helping organizations with the great resignation, giving them that competitive edge to recruit and retain the best possible workforce because their culture is strong and healthy and thriving. Would love to have those conversations and would love for folks to reach out and and just have a chat. Wonderful. Well, we'll make sure we put um, uh, in the show notes how everybody can find you. And thanks again, Sharon. Really appreciate you taking the time and and, uh, being on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Brett. It was really a pleasure. Appreciate it. Okay. Take care. You too. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 